rider skills today, and the topic is common mistakes that riders make. Of course, we're going to be talking about how to avoid becoming common. Clinton Smout has a surprising list of common mistakes and some really fantastic ways to avoid falling victim to that mistake hole. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. Best Rest Products is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters. CyclePump.com. Rider Skills is an exclusive program we developed here at Adventure Rider Radio designed to give you tools that can improve your riding skills both on and off-road. Now, of course, these segments are not meant to be a substitute for professional training. These are ideas and concepts that should you choose to try, you're doing so at your own risk. We have Clinton Smout back again today talking about common mistakes that riders make. Clinton is the chief instructor at Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. Actually, Clinton's also the chief instructor for side-by-sides in Canada now as well. He instructs ATV, snowmobile, and of course, motorcycles. Clinton, welcome back. Good morning, Jim. Middle of winter, what are you doing? Uh, well, hoping for a bit more winter. We've uh, obviously shut down motorcycles and ATVs, and we'd be normally January, we're six to seven days a week teaching and touring on snowmobiles. Mm. But we've had a very, very soft winter, so it's kind of the worst season in record for us. Almost wow, 20 years. Amazing. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's lack of snow is what you're saying. Yes. Or right. we get great snow. I get all excited. Then that turns to rain and plus degrees, and we're out of business again. So mm. I just feel bad for the staff. I can, you know, roll up some quarters and I can sneak through the winter without really having revenue. I'll sell a few bikes or something, but I would love to be able to open up so the staff could get paid. Right. Yeah, because you just eat porridge and stuff. So you're not, you don't cost that much. Yeah. Well, you know, See what's in the traps each morning. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, but for the winter, you also do the show circuit as well, right, right yeah, across Canada, don't you? Yeah, we're excited to get back doing that post-COVID. 
the shows are returning to Canada. So instead of seven, I think there's four. So we fly to Vancouver, which is the other side of Canada, uh, tomorrow. Uh, two of our really experienced teaching kids instructors and myself are flying. And then we've got uh, two folks that live in the Vancouver area that are going to help us teach. So there'll be five of us teaching kids Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Wow. That's great. And and that you do that at, at all the shows right across Canada? Yes. Yeah, so this year we'll be at Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, and Montreal. And we don't do Montreal because my French is terrible. <laughs> so there's a crew in Quebec that teaches the children how to ride right indoors at the shows. Wow. Uh -huh. Well, that's a nice way to get a taste of riding anyway, at least be, you know, sort of in there. Of course, you've been doing it for so long. I mean, you, how long have you been doing the shows now? Uh, oh, my goodness. Since I started teaching, which was 1983. So, wow, 40 years. 40 years. Wow. I think it was. Yeah. The bikes then were, you know, it was harder. You had to leave more time before you left for work because you had to start the fire, get the steam built up. Yeah. Yeah, and then that's off you went. Yeah, that's, I'm so glad we're past those steam engine days. Yes. <laughs> so today we're talking about common mistakes that motorcyclists make. Riders make mistakes both on or off road, for that matter. And I know you have some things that you want to talk about as far as common mistakes. So where do we start? What do you have first on your list? I was thinking that we you know when I review and talk to people about, you know, how's your riding? Where can we help you? Uh, the men will often, they won't admit they've had the privilege. They'll say, well, this guy I know. Asking he, for a friend. <laughs> yeah, he has trouble doing this. But if people admit what's happened, often it'll involve a group riding experience. So I think many of us will ride at someone else's pace or kind of their attitude in traffic. Maybe they're more aggressive lane changers zipping in and out. And if you're riding in a group, you may not ride that aggressively by yourself, but wanting to keep up, wanting to fit in, is kind of a social part of being a human animal. And that's where people run into problems. So that's what I thought we could address first is, you are riding someone else's ride, not your own. Riding someone else's ride. Now, it's so easy to have happen. That whole thing with you get with a group and you want to keep up. So we're probably all riding faster than what we would normally. The exception might be kind of in the business I'm in, myself and the other instructors. Hopefully they realize that the ride isn't about them. You know, someone's paying us to go out on an adventure ride or out in the forest. So mm -hmm. it, it, the focus should be on the participants. So what we try to do is put people in groups according to their experience level, you know, and how long they've ridden what. And that way you reduce the, what the norm in a group is somebody's bored and someone else is really intimidated because of the pace and the mixture of riding experiences. So it's pretty hard to find a group to ride with 
that is exactly the same as you, even preferences. You know, I like stopping and taking pictures. I'm sure it frustrates the people behind me sometimes thinking, oh my God, it's another mountain in a lake. It looked exactly <laughs> the same as the last three. Yeah. Or there's people that have small gas tanks or they have to pee every 25 minutes or they need a smoke every half hour. It's tough to find a group, but the rides that uh, kind of where the common mistakes happen, often it's because people are riding too aggressively for their experience level where they would not be riding that fast if they were by themselves. So how do you avoid this though? Because, you know, like I think of, you know, when you get together with a bunch of people, you either know or don't know. Maybe if you know them, it's a little bit easier. But if you don't know them in particular, you ride with a group. What do you do? How do you break away from that? How do you not worry about, you know, being at the gas station when everybody else goes to the gas station or or even following the person and knowing where you're going? That's uh, we talked about that in another segment, I believe, where yeah. find out what the destination is. And then if you've got a GPS or a map or your phone, at least you can Google Maps. Um, having the peace of mind that, ah, you know what, they're riding too fast. I'm just going to hang back. I'm not going to run a red light to keep up with the group. To heck with them. So if I know the final destination... I don't really care if I'm riding. I don't have to stay with the group because I have the peace of mind that I can get to where we're having dinner or coffee. So um, finding that out before the kickstands go up is important. And what's interesting, and I'm generalizing, I hope we don't get angry messages, but women are smarter than us in this respect. Um, often women will just say, no, I'm not going to go that fast. And they'll hang back where men, (laughs) they don't want their ego to look bruised by putting their hand up and say, Hey, can you guys slow down? I'm a little nervous going this fast. So it is a generalization, but we should all be uh, smarter about admitting our comfort level and riding to that. I remember that when we talked about this the last time, we, I think we did, a, like you said, a full segment on this. One of the things that you also said was right at the start, making it like being the person that speaks up and says, hey, you know, obviously we're going to ride all at different, uh, different speeds, that sort of thing. And then make those arrangements to begin with. Do you remember that? Yes. So I'll, if I'm leading, I'll ask, is everybody comfortable, you know, 10 kilometers over the speed limit if conditions allow? I don't feel comfortable myself going 30 and 40 over because I've got to be very careful with getting like demerit points on my license record. I could lose my license signing authority in Canada or in Ontario, sorry. So Mm -hmm. if, if I get six demerit points, I currently have zero. I've got no tickets or anything. Touch wood. It's not that I didn't do anything wrong. I just didn't get caught. But if I got... You're not supposed to admit that. Yeah. If I accumulate six points, you lose your signing authority for life. Oh, I didn't know that. That's quite the punishment. So it's, you know, that's an important part of what I do sometimes. I I don't test anymore, but I certainly want to keep that record clean. 
So I'll yeah. tell people right up front, I don't want to go at a speed in traffic on the street where I could accumulate demerit points. Whereas 10 or 15 miles or kilometers over, it's doubtful that you'll get a ticket with demerits unless you're doing it in a school zone. And then most police around the world are going to nail you because they have kids or their sister has kids. They, sure. they don't want you speeding in a school zone. So th that makes perfect sense, what you're saying, you know, and that's the way to stop that, to avoid that. Find out the destination, you know, the schedule before you go. Speak up about the speed, because right off the bat, I, I think if you were to do that, it almost diffuses a little bit. Like if you say, I mean, you can easily say to the group, hey, you know, we're going to get spaced out, obviously, because I'm like, I'm just out to enjoy my ride today. I'm not going to be rushing around or anything. Where do we catch up? That sort of thing. And once you've established that, the pressure's off. Yeah. You can just back off. You can pull over if you want to. Take your time. You know where they're going to end up. You know what the ride's about. And you know what the backup plan is. It, you know, you've discussed this already. You've said, you know, if I decide to opt out, I'll send you a text or whatever, and I'm going to head back home. That sort of exactly. thing. Exactly. And I think there's a collective sigh of relief from the people in the group. If you put yeah. your hand up and raise that issue or make some suggestions and politely ask for other people's input. Like, this is how I feel. How do you feel? And uh, we're not really supposed to talk about our feelings as men, but sharing stuff like that. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. That is an excellent way to deal with that. And, uh, and it's completely handled. Fantastic. Okay, so, so what's next on your list? Uh, overriding our own abilities. So this could be, mm. you're not even with a group. You're out by yourself. And I think a lot of us, and part of it might be the way motorcycle magazines test bikes. Often, there's data on the acceleration of the motorcycle, zero to 60, if it's miles per hour. How fast does this bike go in a quarter mile? And those are important data accounts for somebody that wants to buy a bike, usually men. So in the early 70s, boy, I'm dating myself, Jim, but Kawasaki brought out a 750cc three-cylinder two-stroke called the H2. And it was in 72, it was the fastest production motorcycle in the world. You know, there was faster road racing bikes, but one that you could just go down to the dealership and buy, there was mm -hmm. nothing else. So there was a magazine called Cycle World that had a journalist named Peter Egan, really well thought of. I loved reading his stuff. I subscribed to them for years and years and years. Anyway, he got to ride one of these press bikes. And he said two contrasting things. He said, that is the scariest hair on the back of your neck raising motorcycle with the fastest screaming acceleration that he'd ever ridden then his next sentence it is also the worst handling motorcycle i've ever sat on because they had a lot of frame flex so they were a, oh, yeah. a very interesting bike to throw into a corner at high speeds <laughs> well just like you would think wise people would read that and say it handles the worst he's ever ridden i'm not buying that thing but what did most people read? 
It's fast. It was the fastest bike. So <laughs> yeah. you could not find one. They sold out in dealerships in probably around the world, but certainly North America. They were gone. And I see it in, in all kinds of things. Snowmobiles, for instance. If it doesn't do 100 miles an hour, most men won't buy it. You know, north in Canada, it's kilometers. So if it doesn't do 160, they wouldn't buy it. Most of my friends that are real sled heads, they call themselves. Well, the speed limit on the trails is 50. What do you need? 50 kilometers. That's 30 miles an hour. What do you need something that goes 100 miles an hour when the speed limit is 30? It's insane. <laughs> but mm -hmm. that sells snowmobiles. The fact of, you know, every year they compete, which one's got the best suspension handling and horsepower. It's a big selling item. So most of us have an idea on how fast our bike accelerates from zero to 60. And we have skill in getting it there. But we have no idea how quickly we can go from 60 to a full stop, especially for adventure riders when it's mm. gravel, mud, sand, or wet pavement. Oh. Even. Yeah, that is not a statistic that you hear discussed very much. No. <laughs> That's not the next question. You think it would be, actually. The next question after they say, does zero to 60 in this... And then you say, okay, how about 60 to zero? You just don't hear no. it. Um, there was one magazine, now defunct, sadly, Motorcycle Consumer News out of the oh, yeah. California. Fantastic magazine. And they had a different approach to journalism. They didn't accept ads. So if the test rider of a particular bike thought that the foot pegs vibrated or suspension was terrible or whatever they put it right in their article on that motorcycle they weren't rude or ignorant it was based with real factual testing whereas some some folks would say motorcycle and automotive journalism is filtered through the knowledge that if you really cut up that new bike out of whatever company, that company may not buy an ad in your magazine. Mm -hmm. uh, motorcycle Consumer News didn't care about that. They were actually, for many years, just black and white. There was no color photographs even. Yeah, they survived just off of subscriptions. You had to pay to subscribe to the magazine. And, and that's what they yeah. used to fund the magazine. And as a Canadian, it was expensive. It was like $80 a year for me to subscribe, Oof. where... Yeah. Motorcycle Mojo, a Canadian magazine I subscribe to, is $20 a year. Mm -hmm. But anyway, Motorcycle Consumer News, every bike they tested, they did 0 to 60 analysis and then 60 to 0 with expert, expert road racer type quality uh, journalists. Like these guys could ride and women. So my belief is most of us, we override our ability. You know, at night, we call it overriding your headlight, where mm -hmm. you can't stop in the distance your eyeball can see because it's dark out and your headlight isn't that good. Yeah. 
And the same thing happens in my belief. You can override your skill set. You could be going at such a pace, speed-wise, that when a problem happens, you can't stop in the remaining distance. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the, the example would be, you could be riding a road you ride all the time. You know just the, what the corners are like. You know what the traction is like. You've been on it wet. You've been on it dry, sunny and cold. You've done all the different things. But what you while you're riding this, you didn't take into account the fact that a tree can fall on the road, which happens all the time. Yeah. You know, that, that's just one of those things. So that's something that, you, that you're not prepared for. And that's what you're saying about the zero, 60 and, and 60 to zero. If you are not up on your braking skills or, or your evasive maneuver skills, then you're in trouble. Yes. So exactly. A collision can sometimes happen bike and car when the car turns left or traffic stops really suddenly in front of you. And maybe you were a little inattentive. You're looking around, you're looking down to see uh, something on your gauges and you look up and you see brake lights. And even though you're an expert rider, that can cause problems. It happened to me. I was on the road leading to my home in Toronto many years ago, and it was raining. So I put on my brand new rain suit. There was a company, I don't know if they're still out there, but it was called Rucka. R-U-K-A, I believe. Fantastic riding gear. Well, this suit was at the BMW store for about five years, hanging on a hanger. And it happened to be a tall, skinny size. And it was bright orange. So I looked like a big pylon going down the road. But it was quite warm. It was a one piece that you zipped in and had pockets. So I loved it for teaching and riding in the rain. Because I want to be visible. I don't care if people have to pull over and throw up after they see me. I just want them to see me, especially in the rain. So I had that rain suit on. The road is, uh, the speed was 30 miles an hour, 50 kilometers an hour. And this airhead in front of me in his car, when I first realized he kept slowing down without a turn signal, just brakes, and then he would speed up again and then slow down. And as I got closer to him, I realized he's reading the newspaper. I can see him folding out the newspaper. So now the little voice in my helmet is going, what an idiot this guy is. And I put all the blame on the other driver. But what I didn't really realize how close I was getting to him because I was frustrated with this on and off speed. I wanted to get home. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, he stops dead in traffic. Doesn't turn, doesn't pull over to the shoulder, nothing. He just hammers the brakes on and stops. It turns out that he was reading a map, you know, pre-GPS. Oh, right. I found that out after my crash and went to have a little chat with him. But who was really at fault? I was following too close in the rain. It had just started raining. So any kind of stuff that drips out of an exhaust pipe or maybe oil out of a leaky oil pan, rad fluid, that's mingled in with the light rain 
which makes it three times as slippery as after the rain has been going for half an hour. That washes away Mm -hmm. that slippery stuff. So when this gentleman hammered his brakes on, I was following way too close. I hammered on the brakes. I was on a 1981 BMW R100. Uh, No ABS. That didn't come out till the mid-80s or late 80s in a BMW. Anyway, I lock up the front wheel, greasy road, crash the bike. Luckily, I didn't hit the car. It kind of angled off into the ditch. But uh, scraped up my bike, put a rip in my brand new orange pylon rain suit. Now, who was who was mm-hmm. at fault there? Yeah, well, technically, it's technically it's you, but I mean, he is as well. Yeah. It's, it's, as for for doing that, but yeah, I guess technically, you're riding too close, big time. And you know, I'm supposed to be an expert, so when I analyze the accidents I have in the past, it's pretty hard to say it was someone else's fault. And that's mm. where, if we do look at these common mistakes of what happened to each of us, uh, you know, other traffic could be at fault. They turn left in front of us, or, you know, you're in Australia or South Africa, the car turns right in front of you because they're on the other side of the road. Is it really their fault completely? Were you, was your head up? Were you looking down the road far enough and you didn't notice the hood of the car drop or them gradually moving closer to turning? There's signs that I think we should watch for. And so I I think they should be called incidents, not accidents. Because accident means it's totally unavoidable. Maybe mm. an accident is you're riding along and the eagle flying above you drops the snake it was carrying. And that ends on the gas tank in front of you. That's an accident. You can't drive around looking for eagles dropping snakes. But for most of the common mistakes we make, uh, the math mathematical percentage of it is we have the answer to preventing it most times. I was fully expecting a story to go along with that. <laughs> that actually happened to a guy. Uh, they wrote about it in the magazine I write for. He's riding along and an eagle above him dropped a big garter snake. Now, it's not poisonous in Canada, but it sure scared the daylights out of him, and he crashed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the snake was fine. <laughs> We're going to take just a quick break while I tell you about two things, but we have a lot more coming back. Stay with us. Pearly's Possum Socks now makes a sweater called the Pearly's Hugger. And I've had so many emails and comments from listeners who have already bought a Pearly's Hugger and they think it's amazing as well. Like the email I just responded to where Dennis said, you did not oversell the Pearly's Hugger. It's the best pullover I've ever had. I love that. Thank you, Dennis, because I'm not overselling it. I'm telling you, it's amazing. It's an incredible sweater. And if you're like me and so many other listeners, you're going to find Pearly's Hugger to be probably one of the most amazing products that you've you've found. 
I wear mine all the time, probably too much because it's the warmest, softest, just, it's a perfect sweater in so many ways. I've got other wool sweaters. Wool is great, but the Pearly's designed for us riders with a short center zip and an insulated zipper pull on it. It's made from 20% New Zealand possum fur, 70% merino wool, and 10% silk. It has no seams and it only weighs 10 ounces. It's super light. Now, you probably already know the quality of silk and what you get from silk, but that blend that they use of merino wool and possum fur is absolutely incredible. It's not only super soft, it feels great on the skin, but it wicks away moisture from your skin. It resists mold and mildew, unlike synthetics, and I've never, ever had a Pearly's item smell, ever, socks or sweater. But perhaps the most important thing is the way that blend wicks away moisture from your skin even if it's wet. And that's why you can see sheep standing out in the pouring rain as if nothing's happening and they can't go anywhere. They've got to stand in the rain. Sheep are warm-blooded. They're just like us. And like us, they need to keep their core body temperature warm. If it drops in the sheep, like us, the sheep will get hypothermic, meaning the body spirals downward as it shuts down systems in attempt to preserve that core temperature in in the vital organs. But the sheep don't do that. They just do fine standing there soaking wet. That wool, that natural wool, holds tiny air pockets like no synthetic material can. And it's those tiny air pockets that are the insulation that keeps the sheep warm and keeps us warm. And this blend, as I said, is absolutely incredible. Yet at the same time, it breathes, so it allows moisture to escape through the wool. It's just incredible. Get a Pearly's Hugger sweater, and it will become one of your best pieces of kit for riding. And if you're like me, you'll probably be wearing it all the time, even when you're not riding. It's that good. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com is the website. And anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com. Well, when it comes to finding motorcycle-specific camping gear, there is a one-stop shop that specializes in motorcycle camping gear. And that is Moto Camp Nerd. Mo- or motocampnerd.com. Moto Camp Nerd says, pack small, camp easy. And it's a brick and mortar store in Archdale, North Carolina, owned and operated by two, well, Moto Camp Nerds, Ben and Mary Williams. Ben and Mary are not only passionate about motorcycle camping, they say that everything that they stock was thoughtfully picked for pack size and durability, specifically for motorcycle campers. This is the motorcycle camping store, because as far as I know, there's no other store that, no other camping store that that dedicates themselves 100% to motorcycle camping. And, And what that does for us riders is it gives us a place where they actually understand camping from a motorcyclist perspective. That's important when it comes to figuring out the best product or application for your style of camping. Motocamp Nerd is an authorized dealer for brand names like Nemo Equipment, Big Agnes, and Sea to Summit. And their store is open regular hours in Archdale, North Carolina. You can, of course, order online at motocampnerd.com. And they say that their orders are shipped within 24 hours of receiving them. Now, that's because they actually stock the merchandise. There's no drop shipping. The website again, motocampnerd.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Motocampnerd.com. Hey, so I want I want to go back to you saying override. You're overriding yes. your own abilities. So, what are the things we can do to avoid doing that? Uh, 
I think it's a rider with unpracticed skills where you're just mm. relying on the skills you had when you first got into motorcycling. You know, we all took the riding test. Most of us around the world, there was some kind of license test. Uh, North America is thought to be one of the easiest places on the planet to get a motorcycle license. Japan, for instance, that's an incredibly hard test. Most of, of us who have a license in Canada couldn't pass the Japanese motorcycle test. Um, it's all oh, available wow. on YouTube if people don't believe us. It's phenomenally difficult, and it's timed in a pylon scenario. Uh, you know, in Germany, it takes a year, and it's very expensive, about the equivalent of $3,000 U.S. to get your license for a motorcycle in Germany. And at one point, you have to ride with a licensed, experienced motorcyclist in close proximity to you when you're a new rider. Where So a lot of us, um, we get these basic skills, we get out on the road, maybe a season or two, but we don't really work at improving our skills and we don't even really practice emergency maneuvers at the basic level. So four or five seasons of riding go by, then you get cut off. You're probably on a much bigger bike than you started on. And you haven't really tested how far does it take to come to a quick stop at the speed you were going. So that's something I think people could, when I say overriding your abilities, you're going either too fast to stop in the distance you need to, or maybe you're riding a little bit too aggressive in traffic or too aggressive off-road. And when something comes up, which could be, Traffic challenges, lane changing, cars turning in front of you, etc. Or off-road, it could be traction challenges come up. Mm-hmm. Then because we're riding aggressively, we can't handle those. And that's a common mistake where people crash. So practice for those ones. Uh, is there anything else? Yeah, the experience gives us confidence, but if the skills are not practiced, you don't really improve. And those skills can actually deteriorate. You know, if you think of us as, um, and I'm stretching it, but we're athletes, motorcyclists. Oh, I like the I sound don't of that. sound like an athlete sometimes when I'm on. I have one bike, Jim, it's a GS. I'm just tippy-toed on this thing. It's an old, really old mm-hmm. one, but it is huge and very heavy. So to throw that around and get on and off, I don't feel like an athlete anymore. My leg doesn't kick up as high as it used to. But anyway, uh, a lot of us don't really work at keeping our skills fine-tuned. We get complacent. Mm-hmm. In particular, braking and maneuvering skills. Yes, yeah. Um, so we've talked about that before, how to practice yeah. it, take some other training. Most people, if they're going to take any training, it's when they're a new rider and they actually switch motorcycles and switch disciplines. They go from the street to our world of adventure riding. 
And they just assume, you know what? I've been riding for 15 years. I can handle this trip to Alaska and the Yukon or in the outback, wherever they're going. And wow, just because you watch Charlie and Ewan doesn't mean you're going to have the same success. And they actually had a lot of struggles. If you remember the first video, what was that? 2005, I think. They crashed a lot. They went to Simon Pavey School in Wales and they were brutal. And it was just, you know, repetition of riding every day for, I don't remember how long it was, 11 months it took them or a year to go around the world. And uh, they got better, obviously. But in the beginning, switching from street riding skills to dirt wasn't that successful. (laughs) This sort of speaks to the last episode we did where we were talking about those skills in your head that you can take with you and practice on a daily basis. That's the kind of thing right. or, on a, or anytime you get a ride, that's the kind of thing that you can apply to this. Absolutely. So, okay. So is there anything else we can do to prevent ourselves from overriding our, our abilities? Well, I was trying to think on the street where I had crashes and I did do a little bit of racetrack stuff. I actually taught at a racetrack and it wasn't because I was a fantastic trophy winning racer most of the time i was out there just to make the other participants feel better about their day (laughs) right but um i was a good instructor so the guy running the racetrack michelle mercier when he was really hard up for another instructor all his staff were pro road racers Um, but i wasn't i wasn't even really an amateur I was whatever's before amateur. And uh, so, but I could teach. And we weren't going really, really fast. But where I ran into troubles on the track was stuff we just talked about. I remembered this guy named Sasha, who became a good friend of mine. He looked, if we talked about body types, they, what is it, Jim? They talk about a pear-shaped body, et cetera. Right, right. Sasha was more like uh, a beach ball body type. Rotund. Yes. (laughs) And to think that he was really, really fast on a race bike shocked me. So he went by me as if I was almost stopped. And I recognized the number on the bike and the huge expanse of leathers that it took to stuff Sasha into his leather suit. I thought, oh my God, the little voice in my head said, Clinton, Sasha just passed you. He must have been in fifth gear. I was in third. So my ego got me into trouble with trying to keep up to someone else's ride. I really lit up this, what was I on? A Yamaha R6, pretty fast bike on a racetrack. Mm -hmm. And promptly went right off the corner because I couldn't take the corner at the speed Sasha could. (laughs) Now, mind you, once I got off road, I was at home. I knew enough not to hammer on the brakes. I just slowly geared down and came back on the track. Uh, So I was riding at about 110% of my ability Mm -hmm. where when I rode at, you know, 70 to 80%, I was completely happy and completely safe. So if we do try to keep up with others, off-road or on-road, 
and you're pushing your abilities to over 70, 80%, when things go wrong, that's when you're going to have trouble. Mm, that's a really good point. So you always have some reserve there. Like you're saying, even off-road stuff, you know, stick well, well below your limits and then you're able to handle the anomalies when they pop up. Yes. And your limits, that bar of skill level can go up and down depending on how much you've ridden and what you've practiced at. Just riding is great. You're burning gas or maybe even electrical energy. Who knows these days? But are you improving your skill sets with your riding? Mm -hmm. So every now and then, that takes some focused practice or training to get better and better. Okay. Overriding your abil- your own abilities. That's great. So we've, we've covered riding someone else's ride, overriding your own abilities. Now, a lot of this stuff is crossed over into things that we've discussed before, which I think is great because it, it certainly gives a lot of references and other things to listen to. To to brush up on this stuff, what's the next one you have? Complacent in our own riding skills, and as I'm thinking about this, Jim, it's funny. My wife, she is a journalist, like a real journalist. She went to university for it. She hmm. can spell anything, and she writes for business magazines in Canada. Ah. She she painfully reads. A story that I've written in a motorcycle magazine. <laughs> and her comment might be uh, Do you know what a run on sentence means? And I realize I do that when I'm talking as well. So, this complacent in our own writing skills, I've been yakkering on so long, and you're so polite, you don't interrupt me. But we've kind of covered it a little bit where our experience gives us some confidence. Right. But if if we don't practice those skills regularly, they don't improve and they can actually deteriorate. Mm-hmm. Which is like the reason, and I'm not doing this as a sales pitch for, for you or for anybody else with a school, but it is the reason that like you get so much out of taking a once a year, you know, course or actually as many as you want to take but you'll get so much from that that will just add to the skills, even if you've been riding, even if you've taken a course in the past. Absolutely. So in the transportation industry, you know, UPS truck drivers, there's 100,000 of them around the world probably. That company recognizes that if they do an annual or semi-annual skill test improvement, Uh, For instance, they have skid schools. There's one about an hour and a half from my house. They have a monster paved parking lot. They put bald tires on these UPS vans and they spray the wet, they wet down the pavement with soapy water. And they get these vans doing donuts and spinning around. It's a lot of fun for the drivers. But the idea is we're in Canada. In the winter, there's far less accidents with their fleet drivers because they do this regular practice with traction loss control. Mm. And that's kind of what you always talk about as far as learning your skills in dirt. And then that way it transfers to the street. 
coincidentally, it doesn't work the other way, as you just mentioned, for the street does not transfer to dirt, but dirt definitely transfers to street, as you always say, because you learn how to control the bike when it's sort of out of control. Yeah. So um, the real motivation to have the drivers working for your transportation company better skilled is because the the vans don't get damaged, less sick days, the product gets delivered faster and safer condition when it gets there. But um, all of those reasons are exactly why motorcyclists should practice regularly, at least annually take a refresher course or go out in the spring or the start of your riding season and make sure that you can stop hard braking. You can mm-hmm. still swerve around all those little things we always talk about. That's a that's a really good um, description what you just gave there because I mean obviously nobody no one in a UPS truck is going to be sliding around or doing donuts or anything like that. But by learning how to do that and learning those skills and feeling what it feels like when that big van starts to slide sideways, then it becomes the the understanding. Like you said, you you understand how to control it. You build a bit of muscle memory in there. And you're able to handle that situation when it goes back to what we started talking about was when that anomaly comes up, the tree on the road, the person that cut in front of you or jumps on the brakes, you know what it feels like to have that rear wheel lock up. You know how to control the bike when it starts to do that. So that's a, that's a great story that you just told there. I think that really paints the picture for this. Yeah. If other industries are doing it, why don't we do it on our own? Yeah. But um, there's a real myth. I'll call it a myth, not a misbelief but a myth in most motorcyclists that the length of time you've been riding equates to how good a rider you have i hear it at every motorcycle show yeah i mean it's easy to ride the roads and and never have to do an emergency stop how are you going to possibly know how to handle emergency stop if you've never done one before yeah especially on that bike with those tires like our vehicles change our skill sets change Road or like you say, sorry to interrupt you, or yeah. like you say, like if you'd done your emergency stop, like back when you got your license and you did a little course and you learned how to do an emergency stop and then you haven't done it for 10 years. Well, that doesn't make you better at doing an emergency stop or avoiding a situation. No. And the rider training in most places around the world is in parking lots. So the riding tests that have evolved in most of the Western world, they demand about 25 miles an hour, 40 kilometers an hour. That's it for their braking challenge for the test. And you could even fail the test, the braking portion and still get a motorcycle license. But then you extrapolate that to most North Americans, at least, don't buy 125s or 250cc bikes. What do they buy, Jim? Oh, a thousand cc. Oh, at least you need a thousand. Yeah. So uh, that means the skill sets they had five, six, seven years ago on a 125 in a parking lot at 25 miles an hour, those skill sets aren't going to mean too much to you when you're doing 50 miles an hour on a much bigger, heavier bike. You'll know where the brakes are but you sure don't know how to use them to the ultimate ability of that braking system because you've never practiced it. We're going to take just a quick break and then we'll be right back. Stay with us. we got a lot more coming up. <laughs> 
Go light, go fast, go far with Giant Loop. Giant Loop was founded by a, a rider, Harold Cecil, who knew what he wanted but couldn't find it on the market. So he designed his own, then for his friends, and the rest is history. You end up with Giant Loop. What makes Giant Loop different? They say it's their approach. Stemming from that original thought process that Harold had, they believe that lighter and simpler is better and how we ride shouldn't be dictated by what's strapped to our vehicles and that riding is just plain more fun when the unnecessary weight and bulk are removed. So what they do is focusing on what's needed to serve the product's mission, meaning no extra straps and buckles, no everything in the kitchen sink designs. Instead, each product is purpose-built to enhance the riding experience for those who want a modular and customizable packing system that's durable, stable, intuitive, and lightweight. Giant Loop Moto is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. GiantLoopMoto.com Leverage, comfort, and control. That's what you get from IMS Products foot pegs. Now, I've run IMS Products foot pegs for years now, and I, I've said it before, they change the way I ride. I can do far more with my bike since I switched to the IMS pegs. IMS has a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs designed using experience gained over almost five decades of building products for off-road racers. Now, we adventure riders benefit from that knowledge and quality in foot pegs for our bikes, all their pegs are made with 17-4 cast certified stainless steel. All use a certified heat treating process. They're made in the USA and they all are warranted for life. IMS makes extra large ADV1 and 2 pegs on down in size to the Core Enduro series. They've got a peg that will suit your riding style. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Okay, so so we've done um, we've we've talked about riding someone else's ride, overriding our own abilities. I'm getting complacent, which you said was sort of within those that you discussed, Similar. right? So, what's the next one? Poor mental riding skills, mm. and that can be. It's not how good of a swerver or how good you can get on the brakes how good you can climb hills or go through sand or mud off-road. It's the thinking portion of motorcycling. So if we equate it to riding a street bike, for instance, first example, it's almost like playing chess. A good chess master knows a plan four or five moves ahead of them touching one of the players on the board. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's just from practice and thinking about chess a lot. I think a good motorcyclist rides in traffic exactly the same way. They're scanning, their eyes are up, they're looking at left to right and way down the road, and they're judging on what could happen. It's a game I play in my head. You know, I tell the other voices to be quiet, and there's just one voice talking, and it's saying, okay, Clinton, there's a truck in the slow lane in front of you, which means I can't see over that truck. I want to see what traffic is doing four or five vehicles in front of me. And if there's a big wall of truck in front of you or van, you can't see that. So I do not follow vehicles that are obstructing my view. A school bus, for instance. So I'll either slow down and back up, 
like I don't put it in reverse, but I slow down, which opens up the space. Visually, now I can see over and around that big vehicle. Or if they're riding slowly and I can safely and legally pass them, I'll do that to gain good, clear vision. That's critically important for me on the street or the dirt. I don't ride in dust when I'm adventure riding for that same reason. Not only do I want to choke on it, I can't see what's going on crisply mm-hmm. and cleanly. So a mental riding skill is planning ahead. You see brake lights go on, eight cars in front of you in traffic. If your head is up and you see that, you can plan and you can think and project what possibly could occur. Maybe the car behind me isn't paying very good attention and they're kind of following me too close. So I want to leave lots of space in front of me when I come to a stop, at least a couple bike lengths. That way, as I'm slowing down, almost stopping, I have a glance in the mirror. If the car behind me is really encroaching on the space behind me and following really close, I know I've got an, I've left myself an out. I can then accelerate and move closer to the car in front of me, or I've left enough space, I can go up between the lanes or around the car. But if you're not thinking ahead of that potential problem, then you're going to stop, lollygag around, and then be hit from behind without checking. So that's the Mm -hmm. mental skills I was talking about. And it's relevant for street or dirt, where you really have to have your head up and be concentrating on the ride and what traffic is doing or trail conditions are evolving in front of you. If you can do that, it's a really good part of surviving, especially street riding. To me, it's far more dangerous than off-road. If you're not doing that already, how do you train yourself to do it while you ride? Uh, you, you know, a lot of us, especially Canada, we're driving our car more than our bike. So I do it in the car and truck as well. What's that guy doing? You know what? If that guy changed lanes right now, it happened to me the other day. I was on a bike. Uh, it was December and I rode, I have a Triumph Scrambler and I really wanted it at the shop behind my house. I didn't want it at work because I've got some work to do on it this winter. So we had a day with no snow, no salt on the road, even though it was really cold. I thought, I'm going to drive the Triumph home. So if you can imagine... It was two lanes going south through a city, but my hometown. There was only one car in my lane in front of me, and we were approaching an intersection. I saw the light turn yellow, which means the red light's coming. There was six cars, five or six, in the lane beside me. As I was slowing down, following the one car in front of me, my brain predicted that some impatient driver who's going to get stuck between a long line of traffic is going to jump over in front of me 
maybe without shoulder checking or even signaling, because they want to get away from the intersection when the light turns green faster than they would if they were trapped behind five vehicles. Did, mm -hmm. did I explain that scenario? Yep. You can envision that. Sure, yep. sure enough. So when I'm predicting this, I put two fingers over the front brake because I'm approaching the intersection. I had a quick check in my mirror that told me there wasn't a car anywhere near me behind me. So if I had to get on the brakes hard, I could. Sure enough, within a second, this idiot in a truck cut to the right really fast so he could change lanes and he cut me off. Now, had I not been predicting that that possibility could happen, if I hadn't have covered the brake and scrubbed off some speed, checked my mirror, I might not have survived that. I would have been broadsided by a pickup truck. And mm -hmm. as sturdy as a Triant Scrambler is, it wouldn't have survived it very well either. And there goes all those dancing lessons I took, Jim. Exactly. And I was going to add, if, if I can just yeah. add to this, um, uh, one of the ways to, to get yourself doing it is, is start doing your mirror rotation, you know, your, your, your visual rotation, checking your, doing that, that rotation of, I think they teach you in, in, in driving and riding school is, you know, check ahead, then check your mirrors and check ahead and check your mirrors and do that rotation. And, and what I do with it is I not only pay attention to what vehicles around me, what they're doing, just what you're saying. I also like look at what type of vehicle it is. What is it? Is it loaded? Is it unloaded? Is there something sticking out of it? Is it a car with a, a bunch of two by fours on the roof? Like all those sorts of things, as you're describing, is part of that that uh, chess game, I guess, yes. on the road. Yeah. And so we can practice it when we're not even on our bikes. Practice it on in a car. When we're passengers in a vehicle, we can keep our head up and look and play that chess game. And the more you do it, the more practiced you get. My wife does it all the time, Elizabeth, while we're driving, and it's great. I really like it that she does it because sometimes she picks up stuff that I just didn't see or maybe I couldn't see. You know, you come up to an intersection to make a left-hand turn. There's somebody making a left-hand turn in front of me and she'll say, watch, there's a vehicle behind there that I think is going to change lanes. And you know what they're like? They're in, they're behind that vehicle making a left-hand turn yes. and then they change lanes just like you described. And next thing you know, they're driving straight through the intersection and you're making a left turn in front of them. So it's those type of situations where, you know, it's, it's great to have the passenger doing that, but um, I, it's it's part of that chess game. It really is. And so a common mistake that many of us make is we we deal with, we've taken the rider training course, we can stop on a dime on our street bike, but we haven't really developed the other half of the equation is planning and mental chess when riding in traffic or off-road. And a lot of that comes from experience, but the brain's got to be looking for those telltale signs of a car that's going to turn in front of us. You know, I used to do this for guiding, for, for guiding wilderness trips. What I would often do, and I did it all the time, whether I was on a trip or I, sometimes I'd just be daydreaming about it, I'd run scenarios through my head. What would I do if, how would I handle this situation, you know, in a, in a wilderness situation while I'm guiding a trip? All those things. And it's much like what you're talking about, that, that mental chess game. Well, this was sort of planning it in advance, but it's along those same lines. Like, how do you handle this sort of situation? And working it out in your head, the exercise of working it out in my head really helped with um, preparation for that. 
you know, uh, we used to talk about the circle of safety around our motorcycle. So if you mm-hmm. can envision this big oblong kind of circle around us, you are in charge of your following distance and you can influence the driver who is tailgating you. They're really, really close. If you're not comfortable riding with someone that close behind you, uh, don't pull over to the curb and let them pass you in your own lane. Now, that's very common for traffic users in Europe and Africa. They're very, very polite. They see a motorcyclist come up behind them and they'll pull over to the edge of the lane to allow you to pass their driver's door kind of thing, which is a little unnerving if you've never done that before. But it's very common around the world. But if you're not comfortable as a newer rider with someone following you really close, I know my bike can stop probably in a shorter distance than most other vehicles. You know, cars, pickup trucks, transport trucks, because they're just bigger, heavier, longer doesn't matter if they have way more wheels a transport truck takes the longest distance to stop so i don't drive near around in front or behind big rigs the drivers may be experts because they do more miles than we do but it's their vehicle that's inherently dangerous to a motorcycle so that kind of planning kind of mental stuff is a big part of uh staying away from common mistakes. Yeah, that's great. So, so, so far we've talked about riding someone else's ride, overriding our own abilities, getting complacent in our riding skills, and then poor mental riding skills, which is just is fantastic. And it's great that you, you've offered that we you can practice this in a vehicle as well. It doesn't, doesn't matter what you're on. You can practice um, that, that mental chess game, as you said, which I think is a great analogy. So what's your last one? Bike maintenance. Say that again. Bike maintenance. Hang on. Clinton, this just throws me for a loop. It's like this is common mistakes and you're trying to tell me that bike maintenance is one of the common mistakes? Yeah, it is. Um, not a, a high percentage in accident causation, but it is there. Wow. Where, you know, believe it or not, after you buy your new bike, eventually the chain stretches, the tires wear out the battery loses storage power. Mm. Things break on them and wear out. It's not fair, but it's reality. With any mechanical component, it needs attention. The more miles or the more exposure to the elements. You know, our bikes, Some I, I have a neighbor, he parks his bike in the backyard, doesn't even cover it up. You know, so often it's got a foot of snow on top of it. Right. And, you know, in the spring, we'll we'll meet on the street, you know, taking the garbage and the recycling out and we'll chit chat. And oftentimes you'll say, you know, have you got any chain loop? So I'll take it over. And his chain is orange. And the bike, like in neutral on the center stand, it, the wheel won't move because his chain is frozen in rust. I'm going, you know, we could lube this. It'll start moving, but that chain is shot. You need a new chain. I've put two chains on his bike in the last few years because he, no zero maintenance. 
he buys a new battery every year or two because it sits in the bike and freezes. Mm. He's just a character. But um, keeping up with basic maintenance or at least walk around inspection of your bike is really, really important. I see your point about the maintenance. Okay, what well, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess the other thing to keep in mind here is that the older the bike gets, the worse it gets. Yes. Um, so I love old bikes. I, I have quite a few of them. And to me, it's a fantastic way to have more than one bike because it's very little capital outlay. You know, one of my favorite old, old BMWs cost me $1,500 because it wouldn't start. Mm-hmm. And the guy just wanted to get rid of it. You know, and it needed a really good tune-up. All the fluids changed, new tires, blah, blah, blah. I, I think I put $1,200 into it. But I love it because it's so reliable. You know, you could fix it with a stick and a roll of duct tape. It doesn't have a lot of uh, computer-type fancy things. There's no ABS. There's nothing. But it's one of my favorite bikes. But it does need uh, a lot of checking over because, you know, I noticed last year all of the outer sheath of the clutch cable front brake line, uh, rubber on brake lines hardens with exposure to sunlight. So just Mm. time and age. So I replaced the two front brake lines because it's got double discs and bled the system. And I noticed that, you know, the action on the front brake just wasn't as good as it could have been. So I did a master cylinder rebuild kit. You get the new little O-rings, flush it all out with clean brake fluid and bleed it. And it's got great brakes for the era. It's a 1989 so mm-hmm. even if you put brand new 1989 brakes, the technology wasn't as good as the new BMW that I'm excited to ride as soon as I get it, the 1300. It'll have mm. incredible brakes. Yeah. So um, our older bikes, as you say, stuff deteriorates just because of time. Uh, tires is one of the biggest things that cause people to have a a common mistake in bike maintenance, they diligently check the tire pressure in the spring in Canada, and then they don't check it until next spring. Mm. And with, with temperature change fluctuations, air pressure changes. So we think you should check your tire pressure at least once a week. You know, if you were, uh, airplane pilot they can't get in the plane until they've done a walk around inspection that's part of their job so they're with a checklist yeah exactly and that's with the knowledge that someone else in the flight crew or a technician has already done that but they still have to go through this checklist and that's why i believe you know we hear about the odd crash but There's thousands and thousands of planes up in the air at this very second. And it's very, very seldom that there's a crash because of the unbelievably intense checklists. And and parts actually time out. 
there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with the rotor blades on the helicopter or the prop. But after a certain number of hours of use, it has to be replaced. And that would be a federal regulation. Mm -hmm. And that would be to deal with um, things that are long-term that will show up like, you know, cracks, fatigue, metal fatigue, things like that. And and that's one of those things that you can fall into because like I was thinking as you were talking there about fluid changes. And if you look in your manual for any motorcycle, it has your maintenance schedule there. And often it's easy to look at that and think, come on, changing sure. the brake fluid. I mean, well, like, why would I, why would I change the brake fluid when it's perfectly good? There's reasons for this stuff because like the brake fluid will, will get all kinds of contaminants in it just from wear and tear. Like you were saying in, uh, in there, the piston moving back and forth, the particles that come off it builds up corrosion and, and by flushing the system out and putting in new fluid, you mitigate that problem down the road. So there's reasons why this stuff is done, even though there might not be a visual, as you mentioned, the indicator, like with the rotors and the helicopter. But, and a lot of us get, we don't even realize our brakes are getting bad because it deteriorates so slowly. So brakes are a really good example, Jim, of, of bad maintenance. Where mm. when I buy a used bike, um, I know the brakes could be better. So it takes me half a day to change pads, fluids, maybe even, it's a little more expensive, but brake lines. Brake lines will swell as you pull on the brakes. As they get tired and old, they get uh, brittle, but they'll actually swell, which means you're not getting piston pressure on the brake pad as much as when the brake lines were new. You're talking about the, the flexible lines. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So some people will do steel braided lines that prevents that swelling. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point that you've made there. I mean, it's, it's just interesting when we're talking about common mistakes. I didn't expect you to say bike maintenance, but it makes sense what you're saying. Uh, and I, I guess the thing is, you were talking about airplanes and the pilot doing the check around. We have a lot in common with a pilot uh, of an airplane. Like, you know, a, a failure with an airplane is obviously catastrophic. And a failure on a motorcycle with only two tires can be catastrophic for us. Yeah. And it's a hassle for adventure riders. If we, if you think about it, most adventure riders, if they're going on a holiday for a week or two weeks or two months, they're not going around Sydney, Australia, downtown, you know, Cape Town, Toronto, San Francisco. They're going out into the boonies, you know, mm -hmm. probably gravel, far from a bike shop, far from being able to UPS parts in if they know how to do changing of the parts to fix the bike. So that's where I see bike maintenance as being a really common mistake people people do on the tours I go on because they show up, you know, on the third day in the Yukon, their chain comes off because it was stretched beyond adjustment. And that's where it comes off and causes all kinds of problems. And I learned that one by experience. As a kid, I had this bike that I talked about before I bought with the salamanders. And the chain kept coming off. And I had the back wheel pulled as far back as it would go. And the chain was still stretched way out. Because I rode a mm -hmm. all off-road. And it was... So with this old bike, I said to my dad, Dad, 
the chain comes off two or three times a day. And he goes, yeah, you need a new chain. So I phoned the local bike shop. It was $25 for a chain, but I didn't have $25. I was like 11 years old, probably. But I thought my dad's got a grinding stone on the end of a drill. If I took out a few links, I could make it shorter. I thought, that's brilliant. I was so proud of, of grasping that. What my 11-year-old brain didn't realize, the chain was shorter, but it was still stretched. So instead of the chain links riding down on the tooth of the rear sprocket and front sprocket, it was riding right up at the tips or the peak of the sprocket. Mm -hmm. So it still came off. But when it came off at pretty high speed, it locked up the back wheel and it warmed up in the front sprocket. And it took me a long time to extricate. But I learned a valuable lesson. If you try to do bike maintenance on the cheap or don't do proper maintenance, it's going to cost you way more in the end. And people, Good point. people will know that from their car. Like your brakes have been squealing when you put them on for months and months. You finally take it into the mechanic and he said, well, you know, you need a total new brake replacement. The rotor, the disky thing, plus pads, plus your caliper. You've been riding. There's no brake pad left in there. So the pistons are shot. Yeah. So some maintenance, not only is it safer to do, it's cheaper. Uh, mechanics have a line, pay me now or pay me more later. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and for the guy that is the kind of the mechanic on a lot of adventure tours, I would say fix it at home because you might not be able to fix it on tour. Yeah. Or it's definitely going to cost you both in your wallet and in time. You might be held up in Guatemala for a week waiting for parts to come. So, yeah, or even if you're heading out for the weekend. I mean, it's a lot nicer to work on your, your bike, you know, at night or something like that when you have extra time rather than to be laying on the ground beside it when you should be riding on the weekend because you've broken down somewhere because of something that you overlooked or just let go. Yeah. That makes sense. And if you... Like you should be able to do your own oil checking and tire pressure. That doesn't take a lot of mechanical skill or investment. A tire gauge is $7. Mm -hmm. And I meet so many people that don't have one. They don't have a tire gauge. How is that possible? But it's true. Yeah. So there's, if you can't do it yourself, at least pay a shop to do it before you go out on a big adventure ride. Because like you said, it's better to do it at home. There may not be a mechanic out on the trip with JB Weld and stuff like that. Okay, for common rider mistakes, we talked about riding someone else's ride, how to avoid that by discussing it with the group, sort of putting it right out there to begin with. And as you said, it probably will relieve the whole group when you discuss it. And it releases you from that feeling of having to rush along with everyone else's speed or, or whatever overriding our own abilities. You mentioned about riding within a certain percentage, keeping it low, ride to 60% or 70% or something like that. Choose a percentage, but ride below your maximum, below your the maximum of your abilities. Great advice. 
and building our skills. In both those, you discussed about getting complacent with our writing skills. So working on those basic skills, practicing those things that we need to practice, including breaking and an obstacle avoidance. Poor mental writing skills in emergency situations um, that require quick maneuvering. So you mentioned about um, always doing that, that mental chess game where you're paying attention to traffic, you're anticipating things that are going to happen and you can do it in a vehicle, which I think was a great suggestion for us and something that we can all do. And then of course, the poor maintenance of our motorcycles themselves. Clinton, thank you so much. That was great fun to go through this with you. My pleasure. Have a great weekend. And for those that if uh, we haven't wished Happy New Year, Happy New Year to everybody. While I was speaking with Clinton Smout from Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada, Clinton has a world-class training facility at the Horseshoe Resort with endless trails. They've got accommodations at the resort, a restaurant. It's really a truly impressive setup. His website is smartadventures.ca. Now, we've got some photos and a a video, I believe, in the show notes for this episode from Clinton at our website, adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and you, of course, thank you very much for being a part of it by listening to the show. I really like the part about doing the chess moves, you know, and and doing it while you're driving your vehicle. So if you're not riding your bike every day, you can still practice for riding just using your regular vehicle or even being a passenger for that matter. I mean, it's those kind of tips that I just think are absolutely priceless. Anyway, I want to mention to you about our other show, Raw. We have another show that we, if you're not aware of it already, it comes out once a month on the 21st of every month. It's a separate feed. You need to subscribe separately. You'll find it everywhere you find podcasts. It's called Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycle travel. It's very popular as well. Check it out if you don't know about it already. Now, um, the other thing I wanted to mention to you is the show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. We could really use your support. AdventureRiderRadio.com. Click on support. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker for your pannier, your toolbox. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our Raw show. We really appreciate it if you'd have a look. Anyway, my name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. I'll talk to you next week. This is Scooter Chance Scotty uh, coming to you from Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 